Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. And today I have the great privilege of spending some time with criminal defense attorney Pamela Mackey. Pamela is widely recognized as one of the finest criminal defense attorneys in the United States. She attended law school at George Washington University, where she edited the Law Review and then became an associate with Davis, Graham, and Stubbs. She went to Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman in Denver in 1987 and then made a decision to join the Public Defender's Office to get some trial experience in 1989. She stayed for five years before returning to Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman in 1994, where she made partner in 1996, just two years later. Pamela just announced last year her retirement from the practice of law to pursue her passions of skiing, backpacking, hiking, and traveling. Pamela is so well regarded for her successful work in many high profile cases in state and federal courts across the country, including her defense of Kobe Bryant, Don Vito, Fred Muller, Sheriff Terry Nikita, Patrick Waugh, and many others. She's a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers, the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, and is a recipient of numerous additional awards, honors, and publications, including Best Lawyers Lawyer of the Year numerous times for both white-collar and non-white-collar crime. Pamela, how are you today? I am fine. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend some time with us today on the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast. We are so thankful to have you here and to be able to pick your brain, if you will, about some of your experiences and some advice that you may have for our members and any of our listeners. So again, thank you so much for being here. Happy to do it. So Pamela, I want to start with your representation of Kobe Bryant. That was in 2003? That's correct. And it went on for a number of months, culminating in a dismissal of charges. Is that right? Yes. The dismissal happened on day three of jury selection. So I want to ask you, how was it at that point in your career that you became involved in that representation? Well, I was very glad that I had 15 plus years of experience under my belt by the time Kobe walked into my life because it was a firestorm of media. I had had the privilege of having some other high visibility clients prior to Kobe, but nothing, nothing like the storm that erupted when Kobe was arrested and then subsequently charged. I think the estimate was 1,200 journalists at the August hearing, which was basically a first appearance just to get a new date. So it was it was quite the media storm. I had a little experience with media, but I don't know that a lot of people have had to suffer through that kind of scrutiny. <laughs> I read in one article that you received death threats. Is that right? Oh, yes. I, I still get them to this day. No kidding. Yes. The anonymity of the internet is a real problem. You know, it's certainly in the intervening now almost 20 years, we've seen just how vile people can be when they don't think the person they're harassing knows who they are or can find them. I know that the Kobe Bryant case was not your first high profile case. How have you handled the media 
scrutiny and the media attention of your high-profile cases? Well, the general approach that I take, which was taught to me by the founding partners of my law firm and followed really by everyone who has practiced in our firm, is that we simply don't engage with the media. In the Kobe Bryant case, we did give a press conference on the day the charges were filed. And that was because of Kobe's incredible international profile. And at that point, we had a very good idea as to how the case was going to be prosecuted and far more importantly, how we would defend it. And so really as a way to be able to say on a go forward basis, we've said all we're going to say, now please leave us alone. We gave a press conference, but that's the only press conference that I can recall over the last 20 years with the explosion of social media and the instantaneous dissemination of anything and everything that happens. Anyone's notion that you can control the media by talking to them, I think is borderline insanity. What advice do you give your clients when it comes to the media and the press? I assume you tell them don't speak. Do they always follow that advice? By and large, yes. By and large, yet I have some examples in my back pocket that I can trot out where I've seen clients really of the firm, not so much of mine, they predated me in many ways, where clients did not follow that advice and how utterly disastrous it was. So yes, by and large, the clients understood the dangers of talking to the media and the repercussions both legally and personally for doing so. How was it that you became interested in law? I know that you have an undergraduate degree in journalism. Did that spark an interest? Yes. I was in my last semester of undergraduate at CU Boulder. I took a law and communications class as part of my journalism studies and was utterly fascinated. I didn't know lawyers. I didn't know anything about law. I hadn't grown up watching Perry Mason. I knew nothing. <laughs> but it just fascinated me that there was a place where facts and this thing they called the law intersected, and it captured my imagination. Fortunately for me, my then boyfriend, my now husband of 38 years, I can't believe that, was working for Hal Haddon. Hal, even those many years ago, was recognized as the dean of criminal defense in the Rocky Mountain West. He had an amazing reputation, but he had taken a leave and was running Gary Hart's second Senate campaign. My husband was working for him and introduced me to Hal. And Hal asked me to come work for him for a year as a factual investigator to see what law was all about and to see if I really wanted to be a lawyer. During and throughout that year, my interest just kept building and building and building. It was so much fun. <laughs> I got to do factual investigation of all different kinds of cases all throughout the state for really three of the finest criminal defense lawyers who have ever practiced in Colorado. So the process of seeking the facts, seeking the truth, is that really what hooked you? Totally. And did you take that with you? Do you still have that desire to 
seek the truth, seek the facts? Well, I think sometimes truth is an elusive concept because I have been involved in so many cases where people believed in their hearts that they were speaking the truth, and yet it was diametrically opposed to what someone else was saying happened. So truth is not something that I think is immutable. I don't know what truth really is. I do know what facts and evidence are. And it's facts and evidence that fascinate me. And the process of watching 12 citizens sift through a pile of facts, which are constrained by the rules of evidence, and coming to a decision is astonishing to me. And I've never lost my awe of that process. Was there ever a time that you believed the jury got it wrong? I think there were times where when the guilty verdict came in, I was so bitterly disappointed. And as I recovered from that, I began to understand how the jury would get to the decision that they made. And as I've said many times to clients who were trying to hire me and wanted to know my win-loss record, I would say, I've never lost a case I should have won. Because in my line of work, you wake up every day hoping that the only people that want to hire you are guilty clients. Innocent clients are absolutely terrifying. Innocent clients mean that the entire system has failed. The police have failed and arrested the wrong person. The detectives from the police or sheriff's agency, law enforcement agency, have failed to investigate the facts of the case properly. The office of the district attorney has failed by charging a person with a crime they did not commit. Their investigators have failed. And so to have an innocent person sitting in my office, and I had many, but it was always terrifying and incredibly sad because an innocent person should never have to hire a criminal defense lawyer. That's not the way the system's supposed to work. But it unfortunately does happen that way. I have done some research on some of your cases, and I want to ask you about a couple of those. There was one from, it looks like this was a 2008 arrest, Fred Muller. Can you tell us about that case? Yes, Fred came to me after he had been through a trial in which the jury, which had been seated in Gunnison, Colorado, a small mountain town in south central Colorado, had hung. And the prosecution had decided to try Fred for a second time. And he decided that he wanted to change lawyers. Fred was accused of killing his wife, who he loved beyond measure, for which there was absolutely no motive. The facts of the case were very straightforward. They had been out walking after dinner, and they were near a raging mountain stream, and she went over towards the edge to have her picture taken, which was an exhibit at trial. 
And as she stood up, she got tangled with a dog and a bird flew over and there was a bit of situational chaos and she fell off a ledge into the raging river and ultimately drowned. Mm. The prosecution's case was very odd. Their theory of prosecution was that Fred had taken her down to a pool that was substantially downstream from where he said she had fallen in and had held her under until she had drowned. The reason the prosecution had to go with that theory was, and one of the problematic facts for us, was that she had virtually no trauma to her clothing or her body, despite being washed down a raging, and I mean raging, mountain stream. So the forensics were very complicated, fascinating, and we tried that case ultimately in a suburb of Denver because when we got back the 100 pretrial jury questionnaires for the second trial in Gunnison, I think 56 of the 100 had either been related to or spoken with a juror on the first case. There was no way to get an impartial jury in Gunnison, and so it was tried in Denver. I read an article that mentioned that case, and it talks about how, in I believe it was your opening statement, you simply asked, where's the proof? And the article portrayed it as you asking that in a very soft voice, but then the volume and intensity increased with each word. Was that a technique that you often use, or was it particular to this case? Tell us about that. Well, I do think that change in volume is important when you're giving a long opening or a long closing. And by long, I mean, you know, 30 to 40 minute opening, maybe an hour closing. Those are long for me. I try to make it brief so they can keep everybody's attention. But in that case, that particular phrase was simply, in my heart of hearts, how I viewed the case. There simply was no proof that Fred had killed her. There just wasn't any. They found her body in a pool that had snow 360 degrees around it and no footsteps to or from the pool where he was supposed to have drowned her. I think that's game over. <laughs> that's pretty compelling. Why, yeah. why was he charged? You know, I don't know. You'd have to ask the prosecutors in that case. I really don't know. There was no life insurance motive. They had a happy marriage. They had wonderful family support. They had fabulous children. She had just retired as a OBGYN doc. Their life was great. The case never made any sense to me from the prosecution side. Right. And the first one ended in a hung jury. Yes. And then you were invited to represent Mr. Mueller. How did the second case turn out? I think it hung again, didn't it? I believe that's what I, yeah. I did read that. That's why I wanted to ask because yeah. two hung juries, that's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it was 
The prosecution, the two lawyers that tried the case against me, we remain friends to this day. They were wonderful prosecutors, very, very effective. The evidence was complicated. There were lots of reenactments and lots of testimony about whitewater rescue. And it was fascinating from a forensics point of view. And you had a a dead person. Um, And my experience teaches me that when you have someone who has died or you have particularly a child who has been clearly sexually assaulted, it gives jurors great pause to cut the person loose that's sitting in front of them, even if they have some doubts. So, you know, it was a tough case on the forensic side of things and tried extremely well by two very talented prosecutors. Did Mr. Mueller testify on his own behalf in that case? I do not believe he did. Have you had clients in the past who have or you have advised them to testify on their own behalf? I have probably put on more of my clients than just about anybody else in the state of Colorado. I often have my clients testify. What goes into making those decisions? I would think that's a really tough decision to make. And you'd have to really know your client and know the facts and feel so confident in your client's preparation. Tell us how you make those choices, make those decisions. It's always driven by the facts and the theory of defense. And the reason that I say I've done it so often is that both before and certainly after the Kobe Bryant case, I defended more sex assault cases than I can possibly remember. It had been a nature of my practice before Kobe walked into my life and continued thereafter. And if the defense is consent, I don't know how to try that case without my client taking the stand. And so very often that is the defense and the jury has to decide who to believe. Because of the nature of my practice, I ended up in many, many trials having my client testify that the sexual activity at at issue was totally consensual. Did you also have clients accused of other crimes testify on their own behalf? Yes. If I thought that it was necessary to win the case, I gave them the advice to testify. And Colorado and across the country, it's always the client's choice as to whether to testify or not. I think universally took my advice. How do you prepare a client to testify? So I have a very specific way of doing it. It happens over three days. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm taking notes. Yes. I bring the the client in with me and if I'm trying it with one of my partners, my co-counsel, and we simply go over the case as we now know it, usually about a month from trial. So everything's done, everything's in the can, and we just double check to make sure that we're still completely on the same page. We see the evidence in the same light. We see the theory of prosecution as anticipated, theory of defense as we've agreed to, And we just, you know, sort of do a complete overview. The second day is a day of question and answer. And I do it all myself. I do some practice of direct examination 
And I also do some practice of cross-examination. And during that time, there's some advice given. It's really pretty easy advice. Rule number one, tell the truth. Because if you don't, the jury will know that you're not telling the truth. So tell the truth. And then the other advice that, you know, is often given to any witness, whether it's a deposition or a trial, you know, listen to the question, answer only the question asked. Your answer should never be more than a three-sentence paragraph. If the lawyer asking you questions needs more information, they can ask the next question. That sounds simple, (laughs) but particularly in my later years when I was defending people who had been enormously successful in their private lives, it's kind of hard to keep them on task. So we had to practice. And then the third day, we would call in a diverse group of folks, many of whom were repeat attendees to serve as a large focus group. I would set the conference room up like a courtroom. The client would take the stand. I would do direct, and one of my partners would do a blistering cross. And then we'd send the client out, usually with his tail between his legs, to go and try and eat lunch. And we'd talk to the folks about what they thought about the client's presentation. Did they believe him? Did they not believe him? Why? And at the end of those three days, we would sit down with the client and say, here's what we think, and have the discussion as to whether or not it was likely they would testify. So you didn't actually make that final decision about whether your client would testify until after that three-day protocol, if you will. Oh, I think I always knew what the answer was going to be, but (laughs) the client needed some education in many situations. Understood. There's another case I want to ask you about, Patrick Waugh. He was the Colorado Avalanche goalie. Tell us about that case and how you became involved in that. It was, I think, the late 90s, if I remember right. It was pretty early on. I had a very good friend, lawyer, who had represented the Colorado Avalanche in a business lawyer setting for years. I was standing in an airport. My phone rang. It was the old flip phone days. (laughs) And he said, where are you? I said, I'm in LaGuardia. And he said, how soon can you get back? And I said, my flight board's in an hour and I'll be back. He said, good. I want you to rent a car and drive to this hotel south of Denver. And I said, what for? And he said, I have a very, very high profile client that I will not tell you who it is until you get to the parking lot. Well, okay. Mystery. Intrigue. (laughs) So I drove to the parking lot and I called him back and I said, all right, I'm sitting in the parking lot. And he said, all right, come up to room 324. And I said, I am not coming up until you tell me who I'm going to meet. I'm drawing the line. Yeah. So he said, he whispered, he goes, it's, it's Patrick Waugh. I said, oh goodness, even I know who that is. So (laughs) I went up and the room was overrun with his manager and his agent and all these hanger honors. And he was sitting in this chair, just crestfallen. And all these people were, you know, in a blue panic and it was just a mess. And I walked in 
And I looked around and I said, everybody in this room, except Mr. Waugh, has to leave right now. Now, get out of here. Mm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I'm the lawyer. He's my client. I'm going to talk to him and you all can't be here. So they left and Patrick and I sat down. And I said, hello, Patrick. I'm Pamela Mack. He said, I already love you. <laughs> <laughs> Taking <laughs> charge. <laughs> well, it, was, it was quite the scene. So um, he had put his fist through his bedroom door during a fight with his lovely wife. I hadn't laid a pinky on her. And she had called the local constabulary who showed up. And uh, he was charged with a crime. It was known in Colorado as criminal mischief, which is the destruction of another person's property. And we got the case dismissed because, of course, he owned the door that he put his fist through. It was in his own home that he and his wife owned jointly. And so there was no crime. That is one of six or seven statutes that has been changed due to my legal work. Wow. There's now a exception that they call it the domestic violence exception. We would not have gotten the case dismissed as easily after the uh, statutory change. You mentioned that the law changed after this case. Tell us more about that. I've had that happen a number of different times. I think the Waugh case was the first one. And it just simply on a straight reading of the statute, as it was in effect at the time Patrick punched his own wall, there was no crime. And those people who spend their lives on a mission of trying to solve the issues of domestic violence and some of the other areas in which I changed the law did not like the result. And so they went forward to the Colorado legislature and petitioned and won a change to the law. And I'd have to paraphrase here. I haven't looked at that statute in a long time, but it basically was that if you destroy your own property as a way of intimidating or harassing a domestic violence partner, then that is a crime. You know, if you go out and to get back at your girlfriend, you destroy your own Porsche. That is now a crime under Colorado law, whereas when Patrick Wall was charged, it was not a crime. How was it that you handled being in the situation where this very popular and talented at the height of his career athlete is truly at risk for losing it all. How did you handle that? I could never, in any case I had, spend a second thinking about how catastrophic a loss would be. It would be paralyzing. Even in the early days, I mean, Patrick was only charged with a misdemeanor, but I quickly moved out of that to you know, only felony work. And for all of my criminal clients, a, a conviction of a felony was life altering and never for the better. So I couldn't focus on that. I couldn't have done my job if I did. Did you have techniques just internally that you utilized in order to allow you to almost put that part of your job in a box? Well, I think it wasn't so much of pushing that away as it was of attending to what I thought my job was, 
which was to learn every single fact, good, bad, or indifferent about the case, and to understand the law that would be applied to that particular criminal case in every nook and cranny of that law. And that, quite frankly, took all my focus and energy. And so I concentrated on what I could do and what I could control and just couldn't worry about the things that were outside of my control, which often included the media. I just didn't worry about it. What not anything I could do. I had to go win the case. I know that you are calling yourself retired. Is that right? I am officially and completely retired. Well, congratulations for that. Thank you. I need to know, how did you work yourself into deciding when to retire? And also, what did you do to be able to actually retire? By my late 50s, early 60s, and I'm 65 now, so late 50s, early 60s, I was trying many cases every year, all of which were absolutely gut-wrenchingly difficult, emotionally, factually, legally, if not national press, lots of local press. And it was a lot. I loved it, but it was exhausting. And I went through a period where I hung three different major, major trials and had to try them all again. And so where I thought I had three trials, I had six. I just was looking at my life and I'm going, you know, the success is wonderful, but this is really a little bit more than what I bargained for. So I started thinking about what I would like to do if I wasn't practicing morning, noon, and night. And as I developed the list of things, my bucket list of things I wanted to do, I saw that all of them required a significant amount of physical health, physical strength, physical balance. And my view of the world is that a lot of people in this day and age have the ability to maintain their physical health, even with age creeping in for about a decade after the retirement age of 65. So from 65 to 75, I figured I could do a lot of the things that I wanted to do. But after that, some people stay really healthy and other people, the wheels fall off. And I did not want to be at my desk at 75 when the wheels fell off, wishing that I had gone canyoneering or riding the Danube cycle trail or hiking the G5 or all the many things that are still on my bucket list because we haven't been able to travel. (laughs) (laughs) But that'll change. That'll be fine. Well, again, congratulations on that decision. I wish you the best of luck with your quote retirement. And I keep saying quote retirement because it doesn't sound like you're actually staying home and just watching TV, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was never on the list. (laughs) What about writing a book? It sounds like you should write a book. Have you thought about that? Many people have suggested that to me, and I don't know how to do that 
and to preserve the attorney-client privilege. Yeah. And I jealously guard my client's secrets, and I wouldn't know how to navigate that. So that's not on the list either. Regarding your career path, and you've told us a little bit about your time in private practice, but you spent, I think it was five years in the public defender's office early in your career. Is that right? I did. I want to know about that decision. It seems to me that lots of people that go into criminal law, go into the prosecutor's office or the public defender's office pretty much straight out of law school, but you didn't do that. No. And again, it was one of the many, many, many critical decisions that Hal hadn't helped me make. And as I was getting ready to figure out where I was going to go after graduating from law school, he specifically told me, you need to go to Davis, Graham and Stubbs, which is a large local law firm here in Denver, which is where he spent his first five years of practice. And he said, you really need to understand what big law is all about. You need to learn to be very careful. You need to learn to write. And there's no better place than Davis, Graham and Stubbs. So if you can get a job there, that's where you need to go. And by that time in my life, I had learned that whatever Hal told me to do was always the right thing. So that's what I did. Then comes the decision to go to the public defender's office. Yes. After four years in private practice, I looked up and looked at the lawyers that I hoped one day I could become. And all of them had been Colorado public defenders. And I just didn't think I could get to where I wanted to be without doing what they had done. So I applied to the public defender's office and very fortuitously was hired and spent the first 18 months in the 5th Judicial District, which is the judicial district that included Eagle, Colorado, which is where the Kobe case was brought. So my ties to that judicial district were very deep. Having spent 18 months as a baby public defender up there, driving 500 miles a week, covering five different courthouses and five different jails. And as my wonderful mentor, godfather to my firstborn says, learning to work without a net. Did you enjoy your time in the public defender's office? I loved it. I have a lot of acquaintances that spent time in the public defender's office, and it seems a very similar comment. Loved it, but what was your but? I didn't really have a but. I knew I was not going to stay long term. I did not want to be a career defender. My observation is that people that think they want to be a career defender can often suffer from the exposure to the trauma and the tragedy that surrounds you as a defender. But I knew that I wanted to stay there long enough to make a significant contribution, to do some really good work. But I did not want to stay there because by that time in my career, I knew a lot of public defenders. And that just looked like a life that was, if you wanted to spend your career there, was just too difficult and tragic for me as a person. I admire people that can do it, but I knew I couldn't take that as a steady diet for the rest of my career. It's just too sad. Yeah. Was there ever a time in, in your career that you felt that you needed to step back or step out? 
No, no. I had wonderful support systems. You know, I think it helped that I was a little bit older. It took me seven years to complete my undergraduate degree. <laughs> <laughs> Because I spent four of those seven years skiing in Aspen. Oh, that Um, happens. Yes. So I took a little bit of a detour. So I was older and I'd had four years in private practice. And the toughest time was the five years as a defender. But no, I, I had wonderful people around me that, you know, get down or sad or scared or stressed. Um, There was always somebody to, to talk to and help out. Can you think of a time in your career that you could share with us where you felt powerful? And maybe it's hard to decide which, which one to pick. It's a tie between when I stand up to start jury selection or when I stand up to make an opening. I love that moment. And as a criminal defense lawyer, you're still ahead because none of the evidence has come in yet. (laughs) (laughs) No burden um, has been met yet. Yes. So you're ahead. (laughs) And you're just in this incredible place that works so remarkably well. But I just, to be in the arena of a jury trial at the very beginning, you know, talking to people about how and who they are and how they're going to decide the fate of my client and and then getting to make the opening and, and telling people how I think the evidence should be viewed. It's empowering. I, I just love that. It's fabulous. And it sounds like despite many, many jury trials over the years, you still very much trust our jury system. Very much. Very much. I've got another one because I asked you about powerful can you tell us a time in your career that you felt powerless? Yeah, it's it's a feeling that I had more often than not at sentencing. Because at sentencing, so much of the die was already cast. Now in Colorado, we have extensive pretrial investigations. We're allowed to submit whatever written materials we want to our state court judges and our federal judges. And we have a remarkable bench at both the state and federal level here. They always, every case I had, they had read whatever I gave them. And so you walk into a courtroom and I just didn't feel like there was much left that I could do to affect the outcome. And I hated sentencing. So Yeah, very powerless when it it came to the sentencing hearing. What is your best trial tip? If you can think of one, what is your best trial tip? I don't know how to say this without it sounding trite, but it's one word. It's preparation. You have to know everything better than anybody else on the face of the planet. You have to know the facts better. You have to know the law better. You have to know your client better than they know themselves. And I talk about the knowledge piece much more so than writing out the cross-examination or preparing the PowerPoint slide for closing. Because, you know, trials are fluid and you really don't know what's going to happen. And so you have to have turned over every stone legally, factually, emotionally, so that no matter where the other side takes you, no matter what curveball the judge throws at you, you can keep executing 
on the game plan, keep executing towards the plan that you have put together that results in a not guilty verdict. What is the biggest mistake you see young lawyers making in their practice or more specifically in trial? I think for people, even in the defender's office, but certainly those who come up through the private ranks, they don't spend enough time observing really good trial lawyers' work. It's an art form. And you can read all the books, you can go to all the seminars, but I learned so much by watching the three partners that founded the firm that I was with for the vast majority of my career, watching them work in a courtroom. And you just learn so much. And, you know, it used to be that the trials were the entertainment in the county. You go into these rural courthouses in Colorado and they have little tiny wells, the area in front of the bar. Certainly not enough for all the electronics we now feel compelled to use. And they have these gigantic galleries. They can seat 100, 150 people. And that's because back in the day, 150 people showed up to watch the trial. And now, you know, I look out at cases that are not high profile and I don't don't see young lawyers coming in to watch. And I think it's, we're busy and practice is consuming and all of those things, but there's just so much that can be gleaned from just a day watching really good trial lawyers work. It was something that made a huge difference in the way I learned to practice. And I just don't see people doing that much anymore. And that makes me think of mentoring and sponsorship Young lawyers need to observe trial attorneys trying cases and learn their skills that way. But mentoring and sponsorship is also an important part of that. Don't you agree? I totally agree. Absolutely. What have you done in your career in those areas? And how can we do better as a profession? Well, I was incredibly fortunate to be the recipient of very generous mentoring and sponsorship by the three partners that formed my law firm, but in particular by Hal Haddon. And I continued to try and pay that forward. Every chance he got, he pushed me to the front of the line. You got this. You, you go do it. And we'd go back and he'd tell me what I'd done well and what I'd done not so well. And I've tried to do that with young lawyers myself, lawyers that have passed through our law firm, other young women who have reached out to me, with one exception, it's women who reach out to me asking advice. I'll sit down and help them free trial a case. I'll drop in and watch an opening. You have been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2003. What did it mean to you to be inducted into the ACTL? It was a little overwhelming because. I knew many fellows, including the three partners to whom I keep referring, Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman, and all of the fellows that I knew were just incredible trial lawyers. And so I felt a little overwhelmed that I was being invited in. And as luck would have it, I had been invited before Kobe walked into my life and was inducted 
the October afterwards. So it was a wonderful induction up in Montreal, and it was during Halloween. One of my partners and I paid several Cirque du Soleil makeup artists to come and do makeup for the entire Colorado delegation. So we attended the Black Tie Ball in very fancy clothes with wonderful, spectacular Cirque du Soleil makeup. And I think that the reaction to that was fascinating to me. There were some people that were very put off because we seem to be having far too much fun at this very, very <laughs> important event. And then there were the people that have since become my dear friends who thought it was fabulous. I mentioned that because of the diversity of reaction to what we were doing. And it's something that I think defines the college and makes it really strong. I think the college often gets criticized for being a bastion of white men. And for many years it was, but there has always been a diversity and a celebration of diversity of opinions and viewpoints. And I love that about the college. I was incredibly lucky to be asked in my first year to sit on the National Trial Committee. It was, I think, a five-year appointment. I've lost track because I kept begging to come back on it even when they were trying to kick me off. So I was able to participate every year in the judging of the National Trial Competition, which is co-sponsored by the Young Texas Lawyers and held in a different city in Texas every year. That experience shaped my relationship to the, to the college. I stay in touch with the people that were on that committee throughout the many years I was privileged to serve and it also is, I think, one of the crowning jewels of how the college makes the profession of law better. These kids, that kids, they're all in their 20s, they look like kids, um, <laughs> come in and the talent and the ability that is just oozing out of them is so exciting. And they get to meet these really incredible trial lawyers from all over the country. And that experience, you know, talking to many of the participants years later is life altering in an incredibly positive way. And the college devotes a lot of resources to making that competition, really the premier competition, trial competition in, in the country. And I'm very proud of that effort by the college and feel very lucky that I got to participate for as many years as I did. Well, and I know that the college appreciates you very much, as do I, for being able to spend some time with you today, Pamela, learning about your career and your advice. I just have really enjoyed it. I have one other question for you. What will you miss about the practice of law now that you've moved on to greener pastures and more fun more fun uh, canyoneering. Not a thing. <laughs> well, I actually feel good about that answer because I think so many of us worry about what could we possibly do with ourselves. All we know is how to be a lawyer. So I do take great comfort in knowing that there's life beyond, right? Absolutely. And at least my life is fabulous. I'm so happy. I think it, it takes some planning. It takes, you know, knowing what you want to do 
and what you can do because we all have our own limitations, but I highly recommend it. It's fabulous. Thank you so much, Pamela, for your time today. I wish you the very, very best of luck. I sure hope you're still planning on coming to some American College events. That would be great, Amy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.